0: Well, good morning. My name is Chris. Uh, I'm an elder and uh, pastor here at Resonate. I'm so glad you all are here this morning. Um, Last week we started uh, a bit of a that's really around uh, probably wrestling through questions more than giving a lot of answers. Um, There are things I know uh, I wrestle with. There's things I know so many of my conversations with y'all wrestle with. I think there's things that have been triggered over the last four years or so in the life of the church at large in America that have triggered some of that. I think um, there's bad theology that's triggered some of that, um, and my hope is to to kind of wrestle through some of those things. And uh, even this week, I posted on our Slack a bit of a form uh, to ask uh, from you all some of the some of the pieces and things you wrestle with or would love to kind of cover, and uh, I really appreciate some of the suggestions. I mean, there are some really, really hard things that were uh, shared uh, that I I don't even know where to begin. Uh, But this week, we're going to tackle, I think, what was probably the most asked question. Uh, But before we do that, uh, I do want to share this, Uh, only because there are people in our church who are like rock stars. But they're sometimes rock stars without ever telling anybody. Um, They just do amazing things. And I always want to make sure we celebrate those things because we all can participate in those things. Uh, sometimes uh, sometimes uh, there are certain roles that get highlighted more than others in the church. And so, um, But yesterday, here we go, yesterday Rebecca Schwartz went out to a family in our church whose sons were all playing soccer this week, or yesterday, without even communicating with the family. Just go out and cheer for the boys uh, who are off playing soccer. And how cool is that? And this is just, I mean, if you've met Rebecca, you're like, this is who Rebecca is. Like, she's just that amazing. Um, and, but I want to make sure we, we celebrate and highlight um, the, the, the ordinary every day. Like, this, I mean, it's supernatural. This is Holy Spirit empowered and, and prompted in her. But, but this is what we are as a family. And Rebecca owning what it looks like to, to be a family to, to the Kelly family as well. And so um, I want to make sure that we take those moments and... I just was so warm to see that yesterday when Mandy posted that. Um, and so uh, we, we asked and we wanted to wrestle through some of the questions, some of the questions around church trauma, some of the questions around uh, bad theology and teaching, some of the questions around even sexuality, gender, all the complicated pieces. But what do you think was the most asked question? What's a question that has plagued, maybe, the, the, the church Christianity for years and years and years and years and years? Yeah. Just the, the question of evil. The, pro, the problem of evil, as I call it. Theodicy is sort of the, the theological term. The, the question of how can a loving God allow bad things just to happen? And as I said last week, there's a lot of... Um, There's a lot that will be played out that I just don't have an answer for, and so even for this one, I don't know. So I'm going to invite the band back up, and we're going to... (laughs) (laughs) In some ways, that's a joke, but in some ways, it's very true. Um, There is something about that question that the church doesn't have a clear answer, and I would argue that Scripture may not either. And I really appreciate, uh, Sarah and Hoffa and I were at a conference this week, and um, one of the things they had were, were sort of like Q&A to afterwards, but they didn't call it Q&A, they called it Q&R, uh, which was questions and responses. And in some ways, this series feels a little bit like that, a little bit of going, hey, I, I don't have the answer. I have responses based upon, I think, what Scripture says, but it may not be an answer. And what I say, you may not agree with, and that's okay, that's part of the journey, So we talk through Scripture and we think through Scripture. We try to unpack Scripture. We try to make sense of what God has said or what God hasn't said about certain things. We're going to disagree. But let's not get caught up in the spirit of the age and say, look, I'm taking my toys and I'm leaving because I disagreed with something. That's the beauty of places like Life Groups. That's the beauty of community is that we can all come together and go, hey, let's talk about that. I'm not sure I agreed with Chris this Sunday. Let's unpack that. Maybe there's more in Scripture to be said, because I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to cover everything. And even today, we're not going to cover everything to be said about the problem of evil. Does anybody know who uh, David Bazan is? He used to have a band called Pedro the Lion uh, back in the 2000s. and uh, In 2009, he kind of wrote this breakup album with God um, and, uh, called Curse Your Branches. And a lot of it actually uses the creation account to tell the sort of this breakup story that he had, the sort of leaving the faith story, the questions of life, faith, and God. And he has a song called When We Fall, or When We Fell. And it says this When you set the table, when you chose the scale, did you write a riddle that you knew they would fail? Did you make them tremble so they would tell the tale? Did you push us when we fell? And what Bazan is asking, what he's wrestling through, is sort of this question If God made the world as he is, why, why did he set it up like it was? Why plant the tree in the garden? Is the whole world rigged? Did he set it up so that we would fall in the process? Could he have created a different world that didn't have this? Why is there evil? Why is there the play out of sin? Why are children trafficked? Why are there tsunamis who take out millions of people all at once? Why does cancer just wreak havoc on our, our pe- people around us and relationships? Why are there kidnapped children? Why are all these things and, and, and just the brokenness of the world that feels so weighty? And what is this tempting talking snake? What's it doing in the garden to begin with? Why is it there? Now, this is not really a new question. Uh, if you go back even to Greek mythology or Greek uh, philosophy before even uh, the New Testament, uh, you can deal with someone like Epicurus, um, and he'll say something like this. If God is unable to prevent evil, then he is not all-powerful. If God is not willing to prevent evil, then he is not all-good. If God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why does evil exist? And that's a 2,300-year-old question right there. It's an old question. It's an old question that the church has wrestled with. And there's all sorts of ways that even well-meaning Christians try to wrestle through answers to that. They try to tackle this complex question. And it often errs heavily on certain areas or certain aspects of who God is. Maybe the answer is bad things happen because it's just God's acts of judgment all the time. And perhaps there's pieces of that, Sure. But it's hardly the full scope of evil and suffering painted in scripture the suffering of Job is not an act of judgment so we know that all suffering all evil is not necessarily that and it's having enough perspective to ever definitively say it's an act of judgment ever when a tsunami hits it's it's like a total guess and there's too many theologians that sometimes come out and go well that was God's judgment on this thing I don't know how you could possibly definitively say that it's too simplistic of an answer. Sometimes there's well-meaning. Well, God loves you, and this evil or suffering isn't God. He wouldn't want this. And sometimes implied in that language is God would have stopped this if he could. But, you know, people have free will, and so people do what they want. And no one would actually say in that that it's some other way of saying he's good, but he's not powerful enough to actually do something about it. He's got to let everyone have their free will and he just kind of takes a step back. He, and that becomes hardly comforting either. If he could have stopped it and he didn't, or if he can't stop it, how can we trust him ever in the future? And lastly, the opinion that maybe God just doesn't care that much. More than just even the emotions that come out of Scripture, because I think there's some cries in Scripture, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, the cries of Scripture of God, why aren't you doing anything about this? But I think there's some this sort of... Um, God, God's just remote. He's a little distant. And we just get on with our lives. But these are two simplistic answers for Scripture. And let's just point out how often we ascribe bad things to God. Anybody buy any insurance over the last year? Right? And you read all the fine print? What is every terrible thing that happens in the insurance called? An act of God. Right? Flood, act of God. Fire that tears down the house, act of God. Like, all this stuff is just act of God. You win the lottery, oh, that's total luck. But everything bad that happens (laughs) is an act of God. And that's sort of how we see the world. It's just God doing terrible things that he could have controlled. I want to look at the story of Lazarus. Um, Actually, the death of Lazarus. That's actually not really that much about Lazarus. Lazarus doesn't even speak in Scripture, which is always fascinating. Uh, But John 11... Really, the story about Jesus and these two women. John 11, we'll start at verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Oh, sorry. Gotta be better about this. Um, I'll just read off the screen, because I know I did multiple verses. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Hmm. And we actually go on to hear, uh, I left it out, sorry. He goes on to say, um, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after that, this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now I want to ask sort of a good interactive question. What stands out to you already in this story? Or what questions do you have already of what is happening in this text? Yeah, that's a good one. It's like, why did he wait? And like, yeah, he says, I love you, so I'm not going to go and help your brother. <laughs> Which is a weird way of saying that. Anything else? Any questions? And, and there can be legit questions. Who, who is this Mary and Martha? We're just kind of introduced to them, especially in John's gospel. They just kind of show up here. Who's Lazarus? What is Jesus' relationship with these people? And we get a little bit of uh, backstory, but not a lot. I mean, Jesus certainly has multiple interactions with both these women. Um, he seems to deeply love them. They seem to be, and some of the phrasing of, of uh, Mary being at the feet of Jesus, seem to be disciples in some way of Jesus. Lazarus also, someone who is deeply loved. It's actually a phrase that's only used in this Gospel of John for John himself, uh, but it gets used around Lazarus himself here. And we don't know what the illness is. We know that they're in Bethany, which um, is likely this town that's only about two miles from Jerusalem um, and possibly was a bit of a, like a leper colony, um, but that's a little bit of historical conjecture. So you have these questions. And the, I would argue the two day one sort of gets answered in ways that I haven't heard a preacher deal with in a second. In verse seventeen, let's start going. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus was already been in the tomb four days. So, just just to deal with that question of why did he wait two days? <clears throat> so we know if we're doing our math, it sounds like Lazarus was already dead when Jesus found out the information that. The women sent to Jesus to go say, hey, uh, our our brother's sick. But if Jesus is finding out and then two days later goes and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, he is already dead when Jesus finds out that piece of information. So at some point, Jesus might have been like, look, he's already dead. Now there's a lot of superstition at the time about a resurrection after four days. Like after three days, there's a spirit that sort of hovers around the body. That's that's sort of the the ancient writing, the spirit that hovers around the body. But on the fourth day, it's gone. It goes to Hades and Sheol, and there's no resurrecting it. And so at some point, this whole four days thing is tied into, I think, some ancient superstition uh, that that Jesus is ultimately dealing with, going, hey, I'm going in four days. We're going to even find out the body was stinky by this point in time, so it's clearly dead. Um, All this kind of stuff tied into the story. And so um, I think that lets Jesus a little bit off the hook on that weird phrasing of, like, I loved him, but I'm going to stay two days. Um, So anyways. Uh, where do, I'll just read it again. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So this is common, not just consoling, but sometimes they would hire uh, people to like weep with them. Um, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, and and we always give Martha the hard time for being busy and not being with Jesus. But in this story it's the exact opposite. Martha goes out to see Jesus and Mary's the one that remains inside the house. But anyways, we, we make whole paradigms out of Martha and Mary for no reason. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Which she's answering, yes, I understand he'll resurrect. That's that's the theology we have. That's, That's what we understand about the world as good faithful Jews. Oops. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Which is not exactly what Jesus just said at all. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you, which we don't also see that. Um, So maybe Mary's just trying to or Martha's just trying to coax Mary to leave the house. And when she had heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you hid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Or where have you laid him, not hid him? And Jesus wept. So if you want to memorize scripture, here's one. So the Jews said, see how he loved him some of them said, could he not have, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this, Um, that repeated, sorry, I'm so, I'm I'm still so bad at this, Um, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying, sorry, that's the end of that verse, and so what stands out? We we kind of get this longer passage with the interaction with a, both of these women. What stands out? What are questions you have? What is repeated? These are all wonderful questions. If you come on a Wednesday night, Sarah's going to ask the same questions of you. What did you say? Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. He definitely has a different response, and a different response to what question? the same question. Word by word, the same question. Both women stand there and ask the question I think that we are asking as well. Jesus, you could have done something. God, you can do something. Why don't you do something? God, there's evil in the world. There's mass shootings. There's disease. There's death. There's, why don't you do something? And I think both these women come out to Jesus and ask that question and, and have this wonderful interaction with Jesus around it. And I think even the repetition of that question becomes sort of the centerpiece, I think, of some of this interaction, of Jesus' reaction to the very question of Jesus, if you could do something, why didn't you do it? And one of these moments of Jesus' life where it becomes the easiest, it's like the greatest opportunity for Jesus to stand there and unpack a theology of evil and sin and death, he doesn't do that. He just doesn't. And I would argue maybe there's a reason even going back to the first pages of Scripture, maybe there's a reason that Jesus just doesn't give the answer in this moment. Because right from the beginning of the story, what do we find out? God creates everything, and it's good. And it's very good. I mean, humanity is very good. Everything's good. and He puts a, builds a garden for humanity to, to, to thrive in and gives them all sorts of fruit and food and, and, and creates this wonderful sort of shalom, this place of peace where he and humanity are going to thrive and dwell together. And then Genesis 3.1 comes along. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, you can read the Bible from cover to cover. You can look for one simple, clear answer for the origin of evil in this world, and I will say you will not find it. The ultimate origin of evil is just not explained explicitly in Scripture. It seems the Bible compels us, actually, to just accept, in some ways, some mystery around what is evil. Now, as a Bible teacher and a pastor, I don't like that. It drives me a little crazy. I want an answer. I want to know the origin of evil, but the Bible seems to present it as a bit of a mystery We are told, yes, the entry point of evil into the human experience. We are told that right here in Genesis 3, that there's something that is an agent of evil that helps introduce evil into humanity itself. But once again, where did the snake come from? Right? Why is he tempting humanity towards evil? We're just not told. Evil in this form of the snake just seems to show up. It just shows up on the spot. Right? Adam and Eve and his wife, they were naked and felt no shame. That's like where we end chapter 2. And and just so you know, chapter breaks are not original in the text. They're naked, they're unashamed, everything's awesome, and then a serpent shows up. It's just like happenstance. He's not introduced, he's not sort of like given a name here. Who is he? Why is he here? There's no explanation, no rationale. He's crafty. I don't know why he's more crafty. I don't know who taught him to speak, Did God teach him to speak. I don't know. It's just not right. Something's wrong. Now, there's a few things that we can know from the text. The serpent, the snake, is not God. There is definitely a distinction between God here and the snake itself. It's not the same thing. They are not one in the same. We do see that. The snake is something other than God, but the snake is also not human. So we know that humanity itself is separate from this. So evil wasn't a part of God. Evil itself is not part of humanity as it's originally designed. Human beings were created and, and to have this sort of shalom of the garden that is original to us. Whenever we just say sin is just a human experience, it's like, well, not actually. The truest human experience is actually not that. But sin enters in. It's something different. Snake, the snake comes from within creation in some way. But he's not a regular animal. He talks. So what we do know is that evil comes from within creation somehow, but it's not a human creation. The only other created things that we do know about or that have thought or speech in Scripture or are sometimes angelic or these heavenly beings that show up in Scripture. And the serpent does get an identifier, but guess when it comes? Like the last few chapters of Scripture itself. <laughs> We, we just sort of assume that all throughout history we've always understood this serpent to be this certain character, but it doesn't come until Revelation 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. <clears throat> and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, And his angels were thrown down with him. So we get a little bit of identifier. We get sort of a name put on there. But even that name often includes the word the before it. And so Satan is the accuser, if you were really using the original language. What is the devil doing in God's good creation now? We don't know. God actually never tells us. Never tells us why the serpent is in the garden. We're just never told. But it seems as creation unfolds that we sort of enter into this larger story. Um, There are peaks, there's little moments throughout scripture that sort of give us this this vision into an unseen world that exists, spoken of in different terms. Sometimes it's called divine counsel, sometimes hosts, sometimes sons of God. This picture that there are sort of an unseen collection of, of forces out there, people maybe, and unseen beings that do exist in this world. Similar to the way sometimes angels are talked about. And there are some hints that there, at time, was this really rebellion of some of these beings. Spiritual beings that rejected the reign of God, rejected God's reign for it to be an anti-God force. And in a parallel way, that very story plays out in humanity. It's as if there's heaven and earth, and in the heavenly realm, there was a rebellion by some form of spiritual beings. And on earth, those spiritual beings played a role in our rebellion as well, the sort of dual parallelism of that playing out in Scripture. But I'm not going to go down the full rabbit trail of the Divine Council today. The um, Bible Project has an amazing video that's visually compelling related to that. Well, I want to deal with the story behind the story. Because God created Shalom. God created this potential, this beauty that we were created into. And we were created in his image to reflect that creativity, his love, his goodness, his peace, all those things. And as he creates man and woman, this equality, this full image of humanity in these two people, he tells them, fill the earth and subdue it. Now the word subdue, related to this instruction, is actually a bit of a, almost like a military term. It's, it's to sort of do battle and bring things under subjective, uh, sub, make things subject to yourself. In some ways, that's God saying, all right, go out and, and have battle to the rest of the world. There's something about life outside the garden that is not ordered the way that God wants it to be ordered yet. And God instructs his people, go take the battleground. It's as if there's a starting point in the story where God puts us in the garden and creates the garden just as is, but there's more going on outside the garden that we are entering into. That there's something that's not quite in order, not quite how God designs it, is desiring it to be, that we are called into. The parts of the world are not under God's design yet. And God has created us and delegated us to bring about the good and the beautiful and the shalom of the planet itself. And the serpent comes in and questions our allegiance to that very thing. Once again, why, why did created beings show up and angels turn and become rebellious? Were they tempted by something evil as self? Where, where did the evil come from in the first place then? Were they led to fall just like we fell in the same way? What, what happened? And the Bible gives no answers. Just that perhaps there was some rebellion at some point. That's about it. And there's two reasons I think scholars come up with for lack of answers. One is that evil makes no sense. Well, I'll explain that in a second. And the second is God is preoccupied with overcoming it, not explaining it. First is that evil makes no sense. If we are ultimately created in the image of God to do this work where we go out, we name, we investigate, we understand his created order, and our task is to shape it, to care for it, like this is how all jobs work. Like that is what we're tasked with. Every job has purpose and meaning under the, 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 the direction and, and um, that original commission from God to take what is the stuff of this world and turn it into kingdom stuff. That's what we've been tasked to do. To find reasons and purposes of things and objects and and order the world into God's good design. That's what we are created to do. And so when we encounter things that are sort of like the phenomenon of evil, where people die in mass, there's death camps, smallest among us die, there's death in the womb, all the things. We try with our human skill to, to explain those things, but it doesn't work because we weren't created to explain evil. We were created to explain and to bring out what is good. And so when we encounter evil, we just struggle to understand it. We struggle because it doesn't make sense. We try to explain evil and disaster and someone lost in the womb, and it falls short because evil itself doesn't make sense in how we were originally created to be. And this is what we're left with. It's kind of what we're left with. Uh, Even suffering sometimes makes no sense. It's sort of what we're left with at the end of Job. Job, you're suffering. You're righteous, but you're suffering. Job's like, why am I suffering? And God's like, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Be satisfied enough with that, Job. Or even this question with Lazarus. Jesus, why didn't you do something? And he tells Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life which is an amazing statement, but in context, it probably doesn't explain anything to Martha in that moment. Because she just said, I understand there's a resurrection. And he goes, I'm the resurrection. Okay? It still doesn't mean whether or not Lazarus is going like, to raise now or in the future, because maybe Jesus is the reflection of that future resurrection that everybody had already believed in. It's still a question. And to, Mar- and to Mary, Jesus says nothing. He just weeps with her. He doesn't even like, try to address the question. Jesus, why didn't we're you here? And then he just weeps with her. I love sort of this moment, though, for Jesus. It says he was deeply moved. But the word there is, is super strong, as if he was almost angry at what was going on in front of him. That he looked into the very problem of sin and death in his friend of Lazarus, and it causes him angry. Paul Miller, in his conversation, said it would have been sinful for Jesus not to have been angry in this moment, (sighs) not to look in the face of sin and death and just say, I'm tired and sick of it all. No other religion in the world has a God, a woundable God, at the center. But Jesus entered in, confronted evil, suffering, and death. And Jesus' first reaction In the face of of death itself, finally, when he gets there, is tears, moved with compassion, grieve and weep, and not to explain it all. So not only is this a mystery, but God is preoccupied with overcoming it. And I want to unpack how to suffer well and stuff like that today. I feel like I've done a couple messages on that recently, uh, but I do want to deal with some of these maybe slightly more philosophical things. That God is preoccupied with overcoming evil, not explaining it. I love that actually just before the story of Lazarus, there's a story of a blind man uh, who uh, the, the same sort of questions get asked. There's a bunch of people that bring the blind man to the leaders at the time, and they're like, what's wrong with him? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? What's the cause of this suffering? What's the cause of this evil But in the middle of this whole instruction, Jesus kind of randomly will say this one thing. He says, um, and this is John 9, 4 through 5. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So in the midst of like this whole miracle story of healing this guy, Jesus kind of makes a statement of saying, hey, we got to get to work. It's kind of an abstract statement in the midst of this story, but I think Jesus is ultimately saying, hey, while it is dead, while we have a mission, while we were here, we have something to do to bring the name and the rule of God be a part of God's kingdom on earth. Start showing who Jesus is and working in his name. And hear me, I, I, think, it, I think it's too often out of context um, to sometimes take that, 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 these few phrases. Um, so it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Those sort of statements. There's one in the Mary and Martha story. There's one in the story of this blind man. To take it to automatically mean, and I have heard theologians take this take, to mean that God sort of willed this evil and death just so Jesus can do this sort of resurrection or healing trick. But that is heresy, because it is to ascribe to God something that is not actually of God. Evil, death, are not the things of God. Not, we, we can't go that route. Yet I think as much as we join in with other scripture, there is a play out of things like Genesis 50 or Romans 8. Genesis 50, um, it comes in the context of Joseph having all of these terrible things in his life happen to him. He eventually gets... Um, He gets brought back into his family and restored with his family and his brothers. Um, And he says, as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant, so they meant, they considered, they had their own will, uh, evil against me. But God, in his will, he thought, he meant, he considered it for good. Romans 8, uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things, and that is good and evil, work together for good. And in texts like this, we get these little moments where it's not attributing evil to God. It's not saying God is the source of evil. It's not clarifying the exact source. But it is intended to bring about an understanding that God is in the work of overcoming evil and brokenness in the world and will utilize it for his very purposes. Is that not the cross? (laughs) Is the cross not utilizing the evil of the world for God's overall purposes? Peter thinks so. He stands in front of this whole crowd, and he's like, look, you crucified him with your own hands, and it was part of the plan for God's foreknowledge. And he could stand there and say both things. You have a will of evil, and the evil's not the source in God, but God ultimately still has a plan that will play out in the midst of that. And in the greatest moment in history, where the greatest good and the greatest evil will all play out at once, God is still in control. God still doesn't give a perfect explanation. And God invites us in to see what he is doing. It's so fascinating, some of the play out of these kind of stories. Like Mark 5 becomes this whole series of these amazing things where Jesus is really like combating evil one after the other. Just really quick, because that's how Mark writes. Jesus is going against the works of evil. He encounters this huge storm. He's on the boat with his disciples. They're sailing across. It's a massive storm, he's sleeping, and uh, disciples come to him. They're like, Jesus, aren't you going to do anything about this? I'm sure they were much more frantic than asking a question, but they basically say, Jesus, teacher, don't you care about us enough to do something about the storm? And Jesus, which is once again, that same question, right? Jesus, if you can help this, why don't you do something about this? And Jesus calms the storm. I mean, they were scared of the storm, but suddenly they're like freaked out by Jesus in this moment. And then when they get to the other side, they encounter this demonic man who's been chained up by the local villagers. He's, he's crazy. He's naked. He's, he's, all the stuff's going on with him. And Jesus walks up to him. He's like, hey, what's your name? And the guy's like, Legion. And, and so it becomes this whole interaction with these demons. And Jesus ultimately casts out the demons into the water. And the guy's set free. And the villagers rejoice. Or actually, they don't rejoice. They kind of tell Jesus to leave because... He just sent their whole crop of pigs into the ocean. But there's sort of this, once again, this casting out of a demon. There's a storm. There's a demon boy. And then he gets back to the other side. And there's this man named Jairus whose daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, is really sick. And he's like, Jesus, come. Come heal my daughter. And Jesus is like, okay, I'll go heal your daughter. And they start walking. And along the way, this woman's bleeding. And she's been bleeding for 12 years. And she, she just wants to touch the tassels, the, 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 the edges of, of his his cloak, or maybe even the, the sort of Jewish tassels, the, 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 the um, and to touch them. And in that, there'll be healing. And she does, and it becomes this amazing healing story. And Jesus is like, who touched me? And everybody's like, we all did. It's like a rock concert. They're all crowded around. But he knows that something happened, and this woman, he has this wonderful interaction with her, and he brings healing to this woman who has probably spent every dime that she has to try to find a solution to her bleeding. And then someone comes up and says to Jesus in this moment, or says to Jairus, let's not bother the teacher anymore because your daughter has died. Storms, check. Devil or evil, check. Sickness, check. Death, let's not bother. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. Believe. And Jesus goes to the little girl, speaks to her in Aramaic, tells her to rise up, and she rises. And once again, even the worst of things gets a check mark. So in a chapter and a half, Jesus overcomes every evil that could possibly plague us. Natural evil, storms and natural disasters, demonic evil and anything that's sort of on that spiritual realm of working through us. Social evil, even those that have bound up this man and put him in chains and the villagers that have all kind of worked against him. He has set them free, he's dealt with sickness and here deals with death. This is what God does. This is the work of God in the world, is to do these things. And at some point, now, in the future, in a far off, really distant future, this is what God does or will do. He doesn't explain it, but He does say, I have the final word. It's the challenge we have. As David Bazan says, don't you care? Don't you care? When they say, don't you care that we're about to drown? Don't you care that this world is full of evil? And Jesus meets them with a simple question of going, why are you afraid? What have you really put your hope in? And we don't get the answer we want, but we do get an ultimate answer. Assurance. That good, power, justice, all those things ultimately have a final word on the story. That is the story we are invited into believing An answer ultimately that no other system can provide. That in the end, the odyssey is not even a conversation. That in the end, the problem of evil is no more evil. Will you suffer? Yeah. Will it be evil? Uh, Will there still be evil and things hard to explain until then? Yes. But God is saying, I've overcome it. And nothing is going to separate you and me. But sometimes storms still kill people. Sometimes little girls die. Sometimes bleeding doesn't stop. And we are invited in to live with a willingness to understand that the God who we don't understand all the time has chosen not to explain everything, but rather to concentrate our intention on what it looks like to confront and to overcome evil. And although it's not the strongest basis for an argument, I know my time's a little pushing it, I want to look even at the alternatives. Because let's be real, all philosophies, all religions, all of them have to wrestle with the problem of evil. This is not like a Christian thing. Um, It it is a problem of all philosophical understandings of the world. So let's take our most popular, at least for for my neighbors in my neighborhood, is sort of the secular, deistic, or even atheistic understanding of the world. In some ways, we're simply a byproduct of sort of chemicals and neurons and interpersonal things or impersonal things. Choices, decisions, actions are just the product of biology or neurology, nurture and nature. And at some point it becomes a question, okay, who, who says what's evil? Is morality real or a social construct? What's really right? What's really wrong? Are we chemical reactions of stardust, them together? And from a natural world view, all we can say is sort of what happened, right? A mass shooting happened. But it becomes just about impossible without kind of having some fallacies to say that's an evil thing. Because evil's a construct in this world. And a good number of historians, including plenty of non-Christian ones, will point to Christianity as the Western's framework right now of what right and wrong is to begin with. Justice and injustice, good and evil, equality in every individual's life. Like, Tom Holland's Dominion is the most fascinating book if you ever want to pick it up, and it deals with, he's, he's an he's a agnostic historian. Won so all sorts of prizes, but he but he deals with that question of is Christianity really all that bad? He didn't set out to answer that, but he looks at history and going everywhere that Christian has touched. The, the, the movement towards uh, everybody bearing an image of God, everybody being of value, all those sort of things all play out. But anyways, evolutionary ethicists will say that we developed a sense of evil as a society in order to survive. But that's just saying that society gets to arbitrarily decide what is actually evil. And societies as communities redefine what is evil all the time. <laughs> you can't bank on that. In 100 years, 1,000 years, will we still say the same thing? We might look back on us today and the economic system we all benefit from and, and say, look, there's more people in slavery today than there was ever in history. Right now, in slavery today. And we all buy our clothes and like buying cheap clothes at Target and stuff like that. That's a byproduct of that. And we may look back and go, man, that generation was incredibly evil. So evil changes. And what we stand for or don't stand for. I mean, at one point in our history, there were a whole bunch of people that said, you know what, slavery is not evil. And then that changed. It changed for the good, but it changes. Islam and Judaism will speak similarly to Christianity, but with a distant God who is not acquainted with evil. Buddhism will say the problem of evil is simply yourself. Stop being so attached to things. That is why evil exists, because you are just attached to everything in your life i going to wrap up with this. You can hear me well. It is often in Scripture that those closest with God, who have a deep faith in God, are the ones crying out, asking the very question. If you wonder, like, oh, I don't know what I, how I really feel about this because I'm so wrestling with this question, but the question of, of protest and grief and lament and pain and anger... The how long will this go on is the cry of David, the king, who is a man after God's own heart. It is the cry of Mary and Martha, the cl- two of the closest women in Jesus' life. There's a comfort in knowing that we have one who knows our pain. God the Father, who knows what it's like to have the death of a son. Jesus, who knows death in a way that none of us could possibly. God understands. God understands. And it is a unique answer given by a Christian worldview that he knows what it's like. He cares and he weeps. And we may not be able to say, here's why, but we can speak of the very character of the one that we can worship. Nicholas Wasterstaff, I'll finish with this, says the cry, uh, he lost his son and he really wrestled with his faith. And he says, the cry, lament, that we're allowed by God occurs within the context of a yet of enduring faith and ongoing praise. For in raising Christ from the dead, we have God's word indeed that he will be victorious in the struggle against all that frustrates his desire. Thus, divine sovereignty is not sacrificed, but reconceived. If lament is indeed a legitimate component to the Christian life, then divine sovereignty is not to be understood that everything happening just as God wants it to happen or happening in such a way that God regards what he does, not like as an acceptable trade-off for the good thereby achieved. So it's very important because he says, divine sovereignty consists in God's winning the battle against all that has gone awry with respect to God's will. We say sometimes really dumb things when tragedy happens, but lament sometimes lets us go, this is the enemy, I don't understand it, but I do know that he is winning the battle against all that has gone awry against his will. And he won it on the cross, and he will win it all one day. So let's make sure we also, as we move into communion, understand that evil is not just a question about out there. We all contribute to the problem of evil. Sin has affected us all. Even when the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, and we are new, we are given a new identity, we are saints, we become servants of something new, which is righteousness, but sin still works in and through us. And so it's great to say that problem of evil is out there or something, it's some major tragedy, but it is all of us. And and sometimes you're only one or two decisions away from being someone else's evil, (laughs) someone else's hurt, someone else's tragedy. But that's what Christ came to deal with, our sinful predicament and the way sin leads to destruction and death, the rebellion against our very creator, the way we hurt others, ourselves, the way we reject all manners of what it truly means to live as a human according to our designer and our creator. And he says, here's how I'm going to start making things right. I'll die on the cross. I will reconcile people to myself. Have these partners in the way I'm bringing about a new creation. And he invites us in to work against the very evil that the world has given us. So yes, thoughts and prayers, go do something. Both are true. I 100% believe that. I don't know how the politics will play out, but go go do something. Don't just pray the kingdom come. Go be agents of the kingdom in the world. But as we come to the table, we celebrate that Jesus at the cross does a tremendous work of, of taking evil and turning it for the greatest good. And where Satan thought he had the greatest victory, he had his greatest defeat. And that is good news for us all. So we give thanks to God the Father, that our Savior Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again at the Last Supper. The Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, he blessed it, gave thanks for it, he said, this is a cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And he says, whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So therefore, we proclaim our faith as signed and sealed uh, in the sacrament, and we proclaim what has been proclaimed for years, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray. Lord, our God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, into the glory of your kingdom, and we pray together in the name of Jesus what he taught us to pray by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.